Hi, I'm Matthew Viriapa, and from KOSU, this is Songwriters and Tour Writers. On this episode is Oklahoma fiddle player Kyle Nix. You probably know Kyle Nix as the fiddler for the Oklahoma country band Turnpike Troubadours. The Turnpike Troubadours are one of the most successful Red Dirt bands and probably Oklahoma bands, period. While the Troubadours have been on hiatus since 2019, Nix took that time to work on his album, Lightning on the Mountain, and other short stories. His album is inspired by everything from spaghetti westerns and Morricone soundtracks to short stories by Hemingway and Stephen King. Along with Kyle are appearances from other members of the Troubadours and fiddle legend Byron Berline. My name is uh, Kyle Nix. I played fiddle for the Turnpike Troubadours, and I just put out a solo album uh, called Lightning on the Mountain and Other Short Stories. Um, it's kind of a compilation of story songs in the old country tradition. Yeah, with this being your kind of debut solo album, I think the best place to start would probably be near the beginning. And the song Manifesto seems to, you know, not just be an introduction for the album, but also kind of letting people know, like, this is where I come from, this is my history. Was it important for you to kind of begin the album that way? Yeah, I, I think that's what I wanted to do. It was the song that kind of summed up what I was, what I'm doing here, I guess. I, I felt like I had to write it. I mean, the story was out there, uh, the story of my father and my grandfather. And um, basically, the song is about um, their real world experience in the things they've um, done in their lives and um, you know raised families uh, fought wars and survived I just had not a feeling of guilt, but just a feeling of admiration of what have I done compared to um, my father and grandfather before me. Those feelings of uh, not insignificance, but uh, that there's a shadow cast from the the giants of men that were before me. That's that's how I feel personally about it. Shops 
both of uh, your father and your grandfather are veterans who fought in like really significant wars in, in American history. Did they tell you any kind of stories? You know, it's funny. Um, I've heard that, I've heard it many times that um, a lot of vets don't tell um, too much of their stories. Um, and that's how my dad and my granddad were. I don't know if it was to guard their children fr- from the stories, but it, they kind of leaked down from other people in the family and friends. So you would hear them through other people, but it was never, um, you know, a firsthand account of something that happened. And uh, it makes me respect them a lot more uh, because they may have been, um, you know, shielding their sons and grandsons from hearing, uh, you know, pretty rough stories or or something like that. So um, I don't think they're going to go around talking about it too much in in a way of uh, self-gratification. It's your your grandfather, right, then, who was a fiddle maker? Yes. So was that always just kind of in the cards then to to start playing the fiddle? Uh, I guess so. Um, I was, uh, there were two grandkids that played the fiddle, but I'm the one that really obsessed and, um, and played it longer than a year or two. I really, um, it was just something that I felt like I, I had to do and I needed to do. I'm, I'm telling you, it was like a weird obsession. It was like in my blood. I wanted to play that instrument. So all the fiddles that were laying around uh, my grandpa's house that were the adult thing that you as a child were not allowed to pick up because it was very breakable and and uh, very valuable I had it in my head that I want to be the one to play those things you know I want to be the kid that is allowed to touch the breakable very valuable thing and uh, a couple years at least um, I had asked my parents uh, you know if I could play so it, it took a while but i finally convinced them i was serious about it when you keep up for years a couple of years at least asking about it when you're uh younger i think uh they my parents got to understand that i really meant it and i wanted to do it when was it that you started picking it up like how old were you i was nine years old it was actually my ninth birthday when i had my first fiddle lesson it just happened to work out that way my grandpa my grandpa made full-size fiddles but I wasn't big enough for a full-size fiddle just yet, so my grandfather found a three-quarter size fiddle and actually purchased it for me, and I started um, uh, taking lessons on my ninth birthday. So it's been a while. Who were kind of your heroes? Like, what what records were you listening to and, like, trying to learn the parts for? Well, I wasn't really doing a lot of that. There was a... Uh, there was a guy about four years older than me that lived a block away from my house in Perry, Oklahoma, that played bluegrass fiddle. And I just, I wanted to play like that. I wanted to play that fast hoedown type of fiddle music. So that was more of a of a musical influence than anything, was hearing him play. And, um, and then when I started lessons here, my fiddle teacher play. So I wanted to play like them more than anything. On this album, you had like uh, Byron Berline who played with uh, Bill Monroe, who's often called like the father of bluegrass. So what was that like? Byron and I are pretty close. Um, but I haven't had him on a record yet. Uh, when I was with the Turnpike Troubadours, we had him on our self-titled record on a song called Seven Oaks. Well, that banker, he keeps calling 
And that was a ton of fun. Byron's one of those guys that gets in the studio and he's what you call like a, a one taker. You know, he plays it one time through and it's good enough for the record. <laughs> but I, I've hung out with Byron a lot there in Guthrie. When I lived in Stillwater, I was I was going up there every week and hanging out sometimes multiple times a week and, um, you know, trying to pick his brain, listening to him play and, and learning uh, as much as I could, uh, both life lessons and uh, fiddle licks. But to actually finally get him on a record with me was special. And I hope I can uh, do it again if I uh, put out a record. I, I want to do some more, uh, you know, fiddle-oriented stuff where we just go back and forth because uh, it's pretty special to be able to play with a, a legend like him who's played with, like you said, Bill Monroe. He's recorded with the Rolling Stones, the band, Bob Dylan, Amy Lou Harris, the Eagles, uh, and so on. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to have him on the record. What kind of um, short stories kind of impacted the, the songwriting for this album? Well, I... I guess I was listening to, or listening to, I was uh, reading a lot of uh, Breeze DJ Pancake, uh, West Virginia writer uh, who wrote uh, in the 1970s. Very rural um, West Virginia, uh, you know, coal mining, uh, hard drinking stories. I was rooting through a lot of different uh, styles of short story um, from the more technical in rhythmic uh, compositions like Hemingway's to, uh, I'd say, the more descriptive Stephen King and sometimes graphic, obviously. And uh, into the uh, uh, beautiful writing of uh, Shirley Jackson, Hers, her writing's so clean and gets to the point. And I just find that fascinating that some people have a cut to the chase uh, type of thing that sums up about everything you need to hear for a story. I, I've said it before, but I, I just like the format of a short story because you have to sum it up just a little bit quicker. Was there any kind of like one-to-one kind of like you read this short story, so you decided to try out maybe a style like that on a song, or was it just kind of consuming everything and letting it influence you maybe subconsciously? Um, I, I went more the subconscious route, I suppose. Uh, the one, it wasn't style, um, that it influenced, but my song, Good Girl Down the Road, I was inspired to write after I read, uh, Stephen King's novel, Hearts in Atlantis. There's a relationship early in the book between, um, two young boys and a girl who are friends that live down the block from each other. And, uh, at a certain point in the book, uh, the story turns to when they're adults and, and, uh, you know, the story changed so quickly and, uh, and, and took a dark turn that I thought maybe I wanted to, uh, change the story. Well, she says that she don't drink, that she dumps his whiskey down the sink, but I've seen her put away some old crow. As a flower and soft as rain, tongue with a cutting dust bowl twang, and she wears a ring. A good girl down the 
with our single shot rifles raising hell we got stories that nobody knows we still get together for some cards and beer if the work makes through and we're free and clear and he's only stones go down the road it might be a little dark in my song but it's not near as dark as it was in the <laughs> Stephen King novel so I just wanted to put a, an Oklahoma spin on it and uh, if this took place here how it might play out and um, make it more about the relationship uh, between the three uh, kids when they're adults we dealt them a drink till I stumbled to go on there she was like a bright red bow Were any of these stories based on or inspired by true events? Like, did you really leave a girl named Susanna in Louisiana or were there drafts like Rhonda from Dakota or <laughs> other things like that? Well, uh, there, I mean, there are aspects of about everything that are true. I mean, you kind of have a, a jumping off point and then you let your imagination do certain things or you change the names and the characters. Um, obviously manifesto um is uh a lot of it is very true and um all songs like sweet delta rose that you're talking about uh with Susanna, uh, that was inspired by my relationship with my wife uh, she lived in joplin missouri while i was living in stillwater oklahoma so we kept a long distance relationship for quite a while and um and it's hard when you first get serious and really like somebody like that and you don't get to see them as often Susanna, I'm alone again You're in Louisiana till Lord knows when I'm stuck up here where the fire wheels grow Waiting on word from my sweet Delta Road There's a sense of longing and and uh, and and wonder, like when it, you know, is this going to change? Am I going to be able to spend more time? You know, is this going to work out? And no Columbine or blushing bright, show me colors you shine that night. It was about two years of driving back and forth, and that was tough. She had uh, she had graduated college and had a full time job at the hospital in Joplin. I was on the you know road quite a bit, so dancing between our schedules to drive you know three hours one way and three hours you know back. Tender hands to pin me on 
that was pretty tough. But we made it work and uh, obviously got to the other side and she ended up moving to Oklahoma instead of me moving to Missouri, even though I offered. Since this is like your your solo debut, was there anything that you wanted to, to try on this project that maybe you hadn't gotten to with uh, the Turnpike Troubadours? Uh, well, really just recording the songs. <laughs> I hadn't got to do that with the Troubadours. And um, as the songs uh, began to uh, come more and more, I felt like it was time to do something with them. Um, at the time, we were between records, too. So I figured uh, it was the best time to uh, you know, get it out of me. And um, I'm glad I did, you know. Was there something about these songs that spoke to you more individually than rather, you know, maybe in the past try and like put it out on a Turnpike Troubadours LP? Well, they, they were more uh, in my style. I mean, they came they came under my influence. Um, that's how they were written. I didn't have anybody in mind but myself when I wrote them. So that's why they uh we're going to work out better for me instead of someone else. Uh, that's really it. Um, when you write something with yourself in mind, I, I feel like, um, it's probably a little easier because <laughs> you don't have to worry about all the other, uh, you know, noise. You just do what you do. So what was it like finally going in to record them? Uh, I don't know. It's a little bit like, uh, layering a brick wall and uh lansing assist (laughs) somewhere in between there because uh you're building but also it's a relief because you're getting the songs out there that are uh you know in your head and uh you know in your memory and you've only played them at the house so uh to get them out it does feel good it's a certain relief but it's also work so um you know, brick by brick, you you build it and um, and see how the house looks afterward. So you had uh, plenty of the people from the Turnpike Troubadours also play on your solo debut. Did the dynamics of that kind of relationship change at all when you were recording with them? Uh, no, not really, except that I was in charge of the studio situation and uh, I would tell them what I, I wanted. And that's why I wanted them in there. I, I trusted them to, you know, when you spend enough time with uh, musicians that good and just your friends, you get to know each other. So uh, I knew what I could expect from them and they knew what they could expect from me. And um, it, it worked well because of that. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad that I have that relationship with those guys. You know, we've been through a lot and also, um, like I said, you know each other so well that you can um, you can really make uh, good art together. Yeah, and it seems like you know some of those other guys are also working on their own solo projects. And I don't want to have you kind of speaking in for them, but um, are you excited? Maybe are you going to be working on any of those? You think? I don't know. We'll see. Um, I got asked about one of them, but it's it's such a strange time, you know. Yeah. You know, everybody talks about this because, I mean, it's like at the forefront of everybody's mind. But it's such a strange time that it's just a T- TBA. You know, we'll see what happens. And uh, when we get there, uh, you know, we will 
figure it out. <laughs> yeah, um, I had uh, talked to Bo Jennings, and he kind of said that he he needs a lot of distance from like this entire pandemic situation to maybe even consider writing a song about like the last six months. Um, it's just like such a strange thing to to try and think about while you're in it, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's funny because I've written like three songs about it just to kind of maybe vent. I, I've been writing a lot during this, uh, I guess you call it downtime. And it's kind of, it's helped me deal with what's going on personally, I believe, because it's something to do, something to drag your mind away from uh, the outside world for a minute. And even if you are writing about it, you're kind of focusing in on something instead of looking all around you at, um, you know, the storm falling around you. Is that typically how you you write, like um, at home, kind of trying to think about a song and whatever is kind of on your mind at the time? It it's It has been lately for sure. I have this extra room that I'm actually in right now. Um, that I'll close the door and kind of shut off the outside world uh, when I when I come in here. I think Bob Dylan said that one time to for writing to be moving helps. Um, so I tend to like to either be driving or be uh, in this room with the door shut. Um, but seclusion is definitely the the way that I I do it. I uh, try to be alone with my thoughts if any chaos is going on it's like when i'm reading i can't i can't read and focus on the story if um the outside static is too much so i quiet it down i think what uh bo had said was and i think it's kind of playing into like what bob dylan said like um he just needs to be doing something else in order to have like the songwriting part of his mind i think to be working in the background and since everything's kind of shut down, there isn't really anything else to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. You definitely have to, if you have a headspace that you need to be in, it, it's hard to break from that. You know what works for you. Um, uh, it's an interesting thing to get a, a song right. Um, I feel like you, you have to lock in a certain way. And sometimes you lose, you can lose that and then it comes back and then you and then you're like oh this is the spot where i remember how to write <laughs> mentally so um i can definitely see what he's talking about she stood there on the steps crying told him that his friend had been lying and i got nowhere else to go Support for this podcast comes from the original web series, Scene Skeleton, featuring conversations with national musicians, promoters, booking agents, and more on how to navigate the music industry. More at TowerTheaterOKC.com. You're listening to Nix's song, Blue Eyes. In case you didn't know, KOSU's Fall Pledge Drive recently finished, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who donated. 
Without the support of listeners like you, this show and other local journalism wouldn't be possible. But just because the pledge drive is over doesn't mean you can't still donate. If you'd like to donate to KOSU, go to KOSU.org and press the donate button. In the next half of this episode, we talk more about fiddling and violins. We start off with the violin he sings about in the song Manifesto, the one that his grandfather made out of spare parts and his dad nicknamed the Squawk Box. I want to ask just a little bit about like that fiddle that your grandfather had built you from like spare parts. In my mind, it it looks a lot more cobbled together than it probably was. Like, what did it look like? Um, it's it just looks like a fiddle, really. Um, he had taken uh, bits and pieces from other fiddles that were thrown out. His friend down the road made fiddles as well, and. Uh, Typically, if he didn't like something, he would just uh, throw it away. My grandfather's friend throw it away. So my grandpa would just pick up his trash and see if he can make anything from it. And um, as he did this, he kind of ended up Frankensteining some things to, together and then had some other stuff at the house that he, he carved out. And it ended up being this uh, big brown, dark brown, and had a unique, you know, gritty sound to it. So... I took to uh, I took to that fiddle pretty early on. Um, it was one of his full size fiddles that I could I could play. So my grandpa made me a fiddle, and when I was uh, big enough to start playing a full size fiddle, but when I'd come to his house, I would always play that other fiddle. So my grandpa finally said, "Just take that one home." And <laughs> so uh, so I mainly played that one and uh, and took really good care of the one that he made for me. So you know, at his funeral when I was, or he had requested that I play some songs for him. I, uh, I played the old squawk box that he made from spare parts. Uh, I thought that I, I just think that's a cool story that he, uh, threw, threw it together and it had such a unique loud sound to it. Do you mind if I ask what song did you play at the funeral? I, I had written a song that I wrote for him and played on guitar and then, uh, played amazing grace. And I played old Joe Clark. I, I mentioned it in Manifesto that I, I played it when they were lowering uh, him down in, in, into the ground, and that's what I did. That was his favorite song. I figured it, it, it'd be kind of cool to, uh, since I mentioned it on Manifesto and, and while I was telling that story, to actually put it on the record, too. So it's down there, you know, right before the end of the record. might be too broad of a, a question but um where do you find yourself kind of as as a fiddle player like can you say like the kind of style that you have um does it feel any different from what byron does or some of the other people that you may have been listening to or learning from it's a bluegrass style it's sort of a mix between being self-taught and my fiddle teacher shirley landrum her style which i believe 
um, she was taught by her father who was self-taught. I, I think that's the story. So it's, it's a lot of um, personal style that goes with it, but it's definitely uh, rooted in bluegrass and old time, an old time fiddle. Um, it's different from, uh, say, Byron's because it's a little less technical. I can't, I can't play as technical, but I, I, I tend to uh, bow the bow a little, and that kind of uh, distracts from uh, not being able to do as much with my fingers or not doing as much with my fingers. I can, I can do it, I suppose, but it might not be as technical and, and perfect as when Byron plays it. Is there a type of fiddle that you like to play? Are you still attracted to that like kind of gritty sound? Yeah, um, I feel like I've gotten uh, my tastes more refined since then, but I still like a gritty, loud fiddle. I've learned a lot since then. When I was hanging out with Byron at the shop, I would ask him a lot of questions, and uh, he would you know, tell me a, a lot about these fiddles, where they came from, you know, uh, what makes this French one different from this American fiddle? You know, why does an Italian violin have a, a dot on the back of, of the neck? I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of uh, things I learned from Byron. And, uh, you know, sound-wise, um, I, I think I gained a lot of my uh, taste for the sound of a fiddle by listening to Byron play. You know, it seems like the fiddles he gravitated towards uh, tone-wise, those are the ones that I ended up really liking as well. So uh, my tastes have changed, but they haven't gone deviated too far from where I started and, and, the, and the gritty sound that um, I appreciated when I was growing up. So what are you playing right now? Well, my main fiddle, well, I have two, I have two main fiddles. I, uh, one of them is a uh, German fiddle from... 1901 um it's it's kind of what you call a conservatory uh violin it was made in a school but it's a, a german fiddle from the early 1900s and then i have a french fiddle from uh around 1850 it's it's kind of baroque it has a uh, a head carved on the top and has latin embroidered onto the sides and uh it's, it was made by uh, a guy named Onro Derizé, or a lot of people say his last name different because he's French, you know. Uh, mm. Us Americans can't pronounce things correctly. <laughs> so it's it's an amazing fiddle, and uh, I've played it a lot on the last couple of records, and um, but I've also played the German fiddle a little bit. But those are the main two that I would take out and play. I play them in the studio, and I play them on the road. But the French fiddle, I was... Uh, there towards the end of playing with the Troubadours, I was getting a little worried that um, it's such a cool fiddle and, and such an old fiddle. I didn't want to damage it in any kind of way. So I started to sort of pull it into retirement, uh, at least from the road. Have you ever played Byron's or have you and Byron like ever like kind of traded instruments and, you know, you let him play yours and he let you play his? Uh, I've played a lot of Byron's instruments and he's played... Uh, a lot of mine because I've gotten most of mine from his shop. <laughs> um, man, we've we've played each other's instruments quite a bit. Um, we've traded. I've actually well, and I actually got a couple more from other places, and I've traded with him for ones that he had in his shop. 
it, it's just this open rapport that I love to have with him. Um, it's pretty devastating when his uh, shop burned down in Guthrie a couple of years ago. He lost a lot of good instruments, and I had some instruments in there as well. So that was that was kind of tough. But he's rebuilt um, his inventory. A lot of people uh, saw that happen. I don't know if you heard about it, but a lot of people came to his aid, and uh, it was kind of beautiful to see how that all played out and he was able to uh um end up with so many fiddles and and great guitars and mandolins um but i I don't get over there as often as i used to um uh a because of the pandemic and b i don't live in stillwater anymore so i'm not as close i'm over in eastern oklahoma and takes me a few hours to get over there now but byron and i that's definitely a part of our relationship playing each other's uh instruments and um and it's fun and it's it's something cool that you can share uh with someone is an interest in and um and old uh unique instruments yeah and then one of the instruments that luckily like survived the fire was i think this mandolin that he just you know somehow kept in a safe and it didn't go up in flames um yeah very valuable mandolin too wasn't this instrument played on this album (laughs) <laughs> yeah he played it on uh uh the song if ruby and happy that the song that he played on the record he played a couple of really special instruments he played that uh lloyd lore it's a l-o-a-r and they are very valuable and it survived fire has a you know fantastic story he only made instruments a few years for Gibson, and uh, I guess he just put some magic into them, and um, they became like the mandolin to have. Um, you know, Bill Monroe played one, and being the father of bluegrass, it kind of uh, you know put a check mark beside that name. And plus, they were just made so well; they sounded so great that uh, it just became a thing. And then um, he played a an old German fiddle that he played when he was with Bill Monroe and played when he recorded with the Rolling Stones and played when he recorded with Graham Parsons and so many cool people. Um, and he hadn't played it, I believe, since the 80s. And this, or at least he hasn't recorded with it since then. And uh, he recorded with it on the song. So I, that was really special. I, I asked him if he would do it because I thought that'd be really neat. And... Uh, He's a good man. He just, you know, no hesitation, just said, yep, I'll bring him. So uh, not only was it special to have Byron on it, it was special to have those instruments with uh, great stories. And it's it's really, like, really telling of what kind of person he is and your relationship with him that he brought along a lot of these instruments to play on this album. This term's loosely thrown around, but uh, I, I felt like we were buddies enough that I could I could ask him for that. I I wouldn't I wouldn't have uh, asked him if I thought I was going to be putting him out in any kind of way. And plus, it it, it kind of lets the instruments uh, breathe and live a little bit in the outside world and, and tell more of their story. You know, let let them talk and tell their story a little bit more. So I I, I knew that he appreciated that part of it too.
throughout the the album, you you have kind of these interludes to mark the beginning, middle, and end, and they all sound almost pulled from like classic Western movies. And since uh, Morricone recently passed, I have to ask, what was the impact of his film scores on you? Oh, it was more subliminal growing up. Um, you know, Spaghetti Western being on TV and that story playing out while that music um, helped tell and portray the story, how it was meant to feel or come across. So it was it was just deep rooted, really accidental. That's going to sound so strange uh, to say this, but it was pretty it affected me uh, that he passed and Charlie Daniels passed on like the same day, you know, because they were both influences on my music and, and the first record, really. And uh, I just found that so strange. And it's not like, you know, strongly feel like things are just meant to line up that, you know, in certain ways. But they definitely were an influence musically on uh, what I've done in my life and what I did on this record, for sure. Can you name a favorite Charlie Daniels or Morricone soundtrack song? Well, it's pretty easy for me. I mean, I don't know how many times in my life I've had people ask me if I could play The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Uh, yeah, I can. And uh, that would probably be the tune. Um, great story song. Great fiddling, a uh, great, uh, obviously, band. I really like, uh, well, there's several things. Uh, the good, bad, the ugly soundtrack that Morricone was part of, it, that's really cool. Those really gritty sounds, those Telecaster sounds, uh, I think it's tele- It's a guitar. <laughs> it sounds like an old telly uh just sounds like the strings are dry and dusty when they're when they're being picked i feel like uh gritty sounds like that can just kind of reach out and grab you by the lapels and bring you in through the screen and uh show you the surroundings of what's going on If I asked you to like maybe put a scene to like some of those interludes, was there any kind of imagery or like something playing in your mind as you as you listen to those songs now that they're done? That track, um, Prelude, Meet Your Match, that's before the song Graves. I would basically have that's the guy sort of squaring off with his love interest. He walks into the the saloon or the bar, and she's uh, right there at the bar. It's like a gunfight uh, prelude almost, but it's more about him meeting his match. She's going to be the death of him, you know, put him down. <laughs> It definitely is a play on, uh, you know, the Morricone, uh, you know, Western 
standoff. And um, I don't know. I just thought that'd be interesting. Yeah, and that last song, um, like, I had to Google Translate it, so that's the only way I know the meaning of it. But uh, it's like Into the Sunset, which I, when I found that out, I was like, oh, yeah, of course it is. This is like the the song that plays as, like, the sheriff who saves the town, like, rides off into the sunset. Yeah, I just, I wanted to do something fun like that. I built this whole idea that I was going to do the spaghetti western sounds on it with with an intro and outro at least. I had more in the middle uh, that were sort of like the picture pages of the album. But I I just ended up doing a few things on there. But that outro, yeah, I I definitely wanted a ride off into the sunset feel. fun it was fun doing that i I hope that i can do a uh you know a true record where it's that from a to z one of these days uh i think that'd be a lot of fun to sit down and compose uh or maybe even like do a movie like a (laughs) like pull a morricone and you know do a western if i was ever you know if i ever got to be a part of something like that at least come up with a couple songs i would love that to be able to watch something and come up with uh and come up with the sound behind it. That would be, uh, that'd be amazing. I'd be all up for it. I think Byron Berline uh, actually used to do that when he was out in California for made-for-TV movies. <laughs> oh yeah. He got to do the musical scores, so um, I could definitely pick his brain about it. <laughs> do you have any westerns that you you just kind of like watching? Like, what are your favorites? Um, I was literally just watching Good, Bad, and the Ugly the other day. It's three hours. Uh, so there's plenty of material there. <laughs> the way I figure, there's really not too much future with a sawed off front like you. What do you mean? Because I don't think you'll ever be worth more than $3,000. What do you mean? I mean, our partnership is untied. Oh, no. Wait. Not you. You remain tied. I'll keep the money and you can have the rope. You filthy double-crossing bastard! Adios. Filthy bastard! Come here! Come here! I do like the spaghetti western format because it's uh, it's more based on the grit part of it. It's not so much the story is not always going to be good and and some of the stuff can be slapstick but um you do get some cool sounds and visuals and uh grittiness 
they sync him with me at least. So yeah, good, bad, and the ugly. That's a that's a decent one if you can sit there for three hours. So you had mentioned like uh, the devil went down to Georgia, which is just kind of like uh, burn the house down kind of like song. But you also have like some some ballads. I'm not much of a balladier when it comes to the fiddle. <laughs> I, I I guess I just I've always played gritty, and even when I was playing slow songs uh, when I was first learning, um, it was a little hard to slow down my bowling. <laughs> you know, I wanted to keep playing fast. Um, but I I do love to sit down with a guitar and play a slow, lonesome, sad song. Um, there's something about telling that story with the guitar in your hands. Um, you know, you're cradling the guitar and telling somebody about something uh, that made you uh, sad or broke your heart. It's, I think it's something about holding the instrument up to you, too. Uh, at least I believe that. It, it does. It resonates that way with me. Is there a particular example that you, you're thinking of? Oh, the song Lonesome for You. Widower part one. <laughs> I didn't play fiddle on that one. I just played it on guitar. I finger picked it on the guitar. Uh, I've told the story several times now, but I, I wrote that. Um, I had a dream when the troubadours were uh, out on the road. Uh, I was sleeping in my bunk and woke up after I'd had a dream that my wife had uh, died in a plane crash and I just got straight up went into the front lounge and there was a guitar laying there and I wrote that song didn't really take too long because the the emotions were uh, still there uh, that you carry with you after a vivid dream you know they seem uh, like they could be even real emotions or they are real emotions and there was a lot of feeling in, in that at least the writing of the song because I felt like I really meant it they tell you it gets better at the pain subsides Slap your back, shake your hand, say son, you'll be just fine Then pack into their cars and go on with their lives But when I get home, you'll still be I'll still be lonesome for you. Was there a kind of fear that you might have to dispel, like some some idea that this is just going to be like a a record full of fiddle tunes? Because it's really not. It's like a full bodied like LP. Yeah, uh, I think I just maybe in my own mind that's what I wanted to do at least to to kind of whisper that uh, I don't just play fiddle, but there are a lot of sidemen that don't just play their instrument, that are fantastic writers, um, singers, artists. It's funny, um, there's a couple of songs that I don't have any fiddle on the record, and I was wondering how people would react to that because every single Turnpike Troubadour song uh, from Diamonds and Gasoline on has fiddle on it. <laughs> so uh, being that I'm a fiddle player and it has... You know, I'm the fiddle of the Turnpike Troubadours, and it has my name on my record. I was wondering how people would react to songs that didn't have any fiddle on it. <laughs> but I put it out there, and uh, I tried to serve the songs. 
and not worry about it having to have fiddle on it and um, just seeing where it took me. A blinding flash lit the midnight sky. I spun myself around, shielding my eyes, dashing through the heavens, dying in seventh chord. Was a light I beheld before. Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, taking the time out today to come talk with me. Thanks for uh, setting it up, and I appreciate your time as well. Uh, my website is kylenixmusic.com, and you can find all my socials there. Um, it's usually like Instagram slash kylenixmusic, uh, Facebook slash kylenixmusic, Twitter slash kylenixmusic. So it's it's all the same, and it's all lined up. KOSU.org to find out more about Kyle Next and the full list of songs for this podcast. Songwriters and Tour Writers is a production of KOSU in the service of Oklahoma State University. Our editor is Ryan McCroy and our cover art was created by Terry Ferris. You can find Songwriters and Tour Writers wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Matthew Viriapa.